Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets podcast, the first live podcast ever here at the USC Festival of Books. It's April 21st, a day before my birthday. Thank you. That's the biggest birthday dream I'm going to get. And uh, my special guest today is Moby. And I thank you all for being here because we had a hard time getting here. We did not connect. We went to different, it was like our own little spinal tap moment. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, Moby, that it being April 21st, the day after Avicii passed away, do you have any thoughts about Avicii? Ah, uh, boy, oh boy. Um, by the way, first of all, if tomorrow's your birthday, yes. all I can say is like, the 30s can be a challenging decade. <laughs> but there's, there's a lot of room for growth. Well, I don't want to reveal how old I am, but you can look it up online. 30 was bad. I mean, 30 was no big deal, 40 was bad, 50 was no big deal, you're, you're at 50 at the point. Yeah. 60 really fucked me up, I'm still fucked up. Okay. <laughs> um, so Avicii, well, I, mean, I guess it's, speaking of getting older, or right. not getting older, it's just, I mean, there's so much to say about that. It, it, when someone dies so young, it's just, it, I mean, I'm stating the obvious, but it's tragic, it's heartbreaking, it's unnecessary. It's just like the fact that death is the one unavoidable fact of our existence. Why hurry it along? You know, like I remember when I was a depressed teenager listening to Joy Division and wanting to throw myself off a bridge. I thought to myself, I was like, you know, I'm going to die eventually. Why not just stick around and see what happens? You know. Wow. But you have been part of this world for decades. To what degree do you believe uh, the lifestyle of DJs would contribute to their demise? Uh, I mean, certainly there's very little about being a traveling professional DJ that's healthy. You know, even if you're sober and doing it, it's still pretty shitty. You know, like meaning like you're in airports, you're eating garbage food in airports, you stay in hotels, but even like the nicest hotel is still an artificial environment with recycled air. And especially like young kids, and you know that you're old when you start referring to the youth as being something you're not. You know? Excellent point. Like I remember hearing Obama say like young people, and I was like, oh, does that mean like, but, I, but he's young. But so, okay, so... So even without drugs and alcohol and whatnot, touring is unhealthy, you know? Like right. it's very, as you know, from a lifetime of being around this, like you look at anyone who's been touring for a while and they start to look like the Crypt Keeper um, or Gollum in my case. And, but then you add in all the, the free alcohol and the drugs that are just thrown at you. Like I've been sober now for about 10 years, but pre that, thanks. Um, but pre that, I mean, like if, if you're on tour and you're playing a concert, you know, you play your concert, you get on the bus and you leave. And so you can be degenerate, but not that degenerate. Whereas the world of celebrity DJs, they have their own planes. They fly to Ibiza, they fly to Las Vegas, they fly wherever. They stay in huge palatial presidential suites. They do their DJing and then afterwards, endless partying which is great, but so destructive and so corrosive. So, Okay, in your particular case, what caused you to get sober? Uh, so, in 1992, do you remember the band Big Audio Dynamite? Yeah. So I was opening up for Big Audio Dynamite. That was, you know, a splinter group from The Clash. Yeah, Mick Jones and Don Letts, I think. Um, so I was opening up for Big Audio Dynamite um, at Roseland. And, yeah, it's a venue in New York City. Yeah. And we had dinner beforehand at a vegan restaurant called Zen Palette, and I ate a purple Japanese eggplant, and it disagreed with me. To this day, I've never eaten another purple Japanese eggplant <laughs> because I had a little upset stomach, as opposed to drinking, where I had thousands and thousands of soul-destroying, debilitating hangovers, but I kept doing it. And I think I realized that indicated that I had a problem. You know, when you're hungover for the 5,000th time, you're like, oh, why do I keep doing this when it's like, it's just this 
I don't know, diminishing returns. So was it just one day you woke up and said, this is it? It was, well, I tried getting sober multiple times. Usually, yes. And then... And was this with the program or by yourself? Eventually, it was just AA. Right. Um, I mean, it works for me. If other people get sober without AA, God bless. There's no right way to do it. Um, but it was October 17th, 2008. I had played a fundraiser for Kristen Gillibrand. Um, she was running to take Hillary Clinton's seat. And just had... Just a stupid night, not with her. I'm not trying to throw Kristen Gillibrand under the bus. Like we weren't, you know, we weren't up at four o'clock in the morning doing cocaine and talking about how we should start that would a band. Be a story, yeah, that would be. No, she left early on. Good for her. And then I found myself at like four o'clock in the morning at some dive bar in Hudson, New York, standing on stage asking if anyone there could sell me drugs and then buying drugs and doing them by myself and then at nine o'clock in the morning getting on Amtrak and I hadn't slept and I felt like death had like put me in a bag and thrown me down a flight of concrete stairs. Like I was just destroyed. And I thought, you know, this isn't getting better. And then you had that decision. Did you immediately go into AA? Yeah, I went to an AA meeting and just sat there, started crying and said, I'm Moby, I'm an alcoholic. And that was day one. And what did you learn in the... I, mean, I used to drink and I stopped drinking for a cornucopia of reasons. And for like the first 30 days, it was a lifestyle change. Like the things, places I would normally go, I would oh, yeah. go. And then it was earlier when a lot of people were not sober. It was really quite a head-spinning experience, irrelevant of not waking up hungover. Well, especially, I lived in lower Manhattan. And so in New York, for anyone who's spent time in New York, you know that it's paradise for degenerates. <laughs> like the, and Assuming the, you can afford to live in Manhattan now. Yeah, but like the ethos of New York is just abject debauchery and degeneracy. It doesn't matter who you are, like where you are on the socioeconomic spectrum. Like if you're not drinking and doing drugs in New York, you're missing out on why you should be in New York. Um, so... Yeah, so suddenly I was sober, living in the East Village and having my recording studio on the Lower East Side. So every day I would like walk home from work past all the bars where I used to get drunk to go eat cereal and watch The Daily Show. And which was good. I wasn't hung over, but I was missing out on everything. And to this day, I still don't know how I stuck with it. You know, why on one of those walk homes I didn't just like go into a dive bar, get drunk, and try to convince some like au pair to go home with me? Let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in Darien, Connecticut, not far from where I grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut. Darien is a very upscale bedroom community. Most people work in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. However, there are other people of not of that economic caliber. So what was your experience growing up in Darien? Well, so I was born on 148th Street in Harlem, and then my dad died when I was two, and my mom... Do you happen to know what he died of? Uh, alcoholism. He drove into a wall. And so clearly it's... Wait, horrific. drove in a wall metaphorically or literally? Literally. I mean, I guess it worked on a metaphoric level as well. Right, right, but right. like, no, he literally drove into a wall on the Jersey Turnpike at 100 miles an hour. Wow. Yeah. Pre-airbags. So it didn't work out too well. Um, and so my mom moved us back to Darien where she had grown up. But we were poor white trash. We were on food stamps and on welfare. We but lived. If she in was from Darien. Did she come from an upscale family? Her dad, my grandfather, worked on Wall Street. Okay. And so she moved us back to Darien because the schools were good. It was familiar, and she had family around. So, what was your experience like? Constant shame. Because you were not one of the wealthy people. Yeah, because we were so. My mom was a pot-smoking hippie who dated Hell's Angels. And Darien is the land of, like, Lily Pulitzer pants and golf country clubs. And, you know, like, my first serious girlfriend, her, she came from the Rand family. Sorry, I don't, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not going to get her in trouble. Like, you know, the Rand Corporation. Right. Like, that's her posse, her family. And her dad owned a fleet of oil tankers. So that's my first serious girlfriend. My second serious girlfriend, her grandfather was Bill Hewlett, who started Hewlett-Packard. So it's like a level of wealth that you can't imagine. And my mom and I were on food stamps and welfare, and I would come home and she would be, you know, like smoking pot in the kitchen with her Hells Angels boyfriend. And was there music in the house? Constantly. And what music did you hear? 
everything. My mom had the most remarkable taste in books, which is germane as we're at the LA Times Festival of Books. That's what it's called, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, because she had been a literature major at Barnard. And, and she graduated from Barnard? She eventually graduated from Eastcon in Danbury. Okay. Um, but so she went back. Yeah, she went back it to school. shows a level of perseverance despite being a, you know, a Hell's Angel dating hippie person. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was really erudite and academic. She just liked bad boys. Um, so, but her book collection, I mean, like, I grew up reading Faulkner and Rambeau and Bukowski when I was 12 years old. Just because you, she didn't turn them on to you, you just saw them on the shelf and you pulled them down. Yeah, I was talking about this earlier with the, a nice man at PBS. I was like, when you're 12 years old and you're bored in the middle of the summer and there's nothing good on TV, you go to the bookshelf and you see As I, as I Lay Dying. And you're like, that sounds cool. <laughs> Or, you know, like A Season in Hell by Rambeau. And you're like, oh, I want to read that. Or, you know, Bukowski, you know, like every book he wrote has an amazing title. So I just started reading compulsively and her record collection was everything from I don't know Dvorak to Coltrane like she still maintains that I was conceived while my mom and my dad were listening to uh, Love Supreme wow now that whether it's true or not who cares right. um, <laughs> so yeah so I mean Crosby Stills and Nash and Young to Stravinsky to Bruce Springsteen to, she loved like a lot of late 60s folk music, like It's a Wonderful Day, or It's a Beautiful Day? It's a Beautiful it's Day. It's a Beautiful Day, and Donovan, and Jefferson Airplane, and Nick Drake, so it was like she, I grew up with an amazing record collection, just so eclectic. And what point did you start to play music? I started studying music when I was around nine. And what was the impetus for that? That I loved music, and I just wanted to do anything I could to be around it. And was this private lessons or in school or by yourself? Well, my mom played piano and she dated a bunch of itinerant musicians, um, one of whom was a pedal steel player. And I tried to learn pedal steel at 10 and I couldn't. <laughs> like, it was just too, like, as your feet are doing things. So one of her boyfriends had left a guitar behind. And so I started playing guitar. And she had a friend who taught guitar lessons. And he was the most idiosyncratic music teacher because he played in a metal band, you know, he was one of those like diddly 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 right, guys. Right, right. His name's Chris Rizzola, like a phenomenal virtuoso guitarist, but he loved music theory, Bach, and jazz fusion. So he instilled in me, like we would study scales and deconstruct Bach cantatas and then learn how to play Purple Haze. This is all on the guitar. All on the guitar. Well, that's not easy to do on the guitar. Yeah. And so you learned how to read music, and you still read music to this day? About as well as I can read French. Meaning, like, I can figure it out if you hold a gun to my head. But, like, like friends of mine who can sight read, I'm sure you know those people. Right. Like, like you put Rachmaninoff in front of them, put them to the piano, and they just start playing it. Like, there's absolutely no way I could even begin to do that. It would take me 10 minutes to get like the first stanza. Well, in my uh, family, we started with piano lessons and then mm -hmm. of course the folk era and the Beatles came along, we picked up guitar, but the issue was always practicing. Did you practice? I practiced constantly because I was untroubled by much, having much of a social life or a dating life. Did you have friends? I had a few friends. Okay. Uh, but not too many, so I had a lot of free time growing up. You know, especially summer times, like you know what it's like right, in right. Fairfield County, like all the rich kids go to country clubs, they go to Switzerland, they go to islands like Fisher's Island and Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, and I stay home and watch TV, listen to records, play guitar, drive my bike to Johnny's Records to look at records that someday I might be able to afford. So, you're in school, your mother is highly educated, What kind of track are you on? Are you thinking, I'm going to go to college, I can't wait to drop out? What's going through your head? Well, uh, when I went, I went to UConn Stores and Stanford. I didn't know that. I didn't graduate. How I long to, did you go for? I went to UConn Stores for a year, went to UConn Stanford. This is, means a lot to us. Right. Um, <laughs> and I went to SUNY Purchase for a little while. Well, let's, let's go back. You're at UConn Stores. Yeah. Isn't that like a square peg in a round hole? Oh, absolutely. That's why I didn't stay. 
I mean, also, I, just, I, was having, I was having terrible panic attacks, and I had to leave anyway. But, like, Yukon Stores is known for basketball and agriculture. Yeah. And it's in, and this is hard to say about Connecticut, but it's literally in the middle of nowhere Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sort of like the, let's, by way of comparison, like, the outskirts of Fresno. Right. You know? um, so I was there, and this was the early 80s, and all I wanted was to be in New York, or be in London, or be in Los Angeles, and be a part of a music scene. So I would listen to music, and I would go to classes, but being in this small farm town, it, it was very frustrating. And then you ended up going to purchase. I went to purchase, and I was a philosophy major the whole time. Okay. So, so if it weren't for music, I sort of thought that my life plan was going to be teaching philosophy at some community college somewhere. So you went to like three or four colleges. If you were to go back today, like in the Bruce Springsteen record where his mother says, never too late to go back, how much would you have to do to graduate? Oh, probably take four years of classes. Okay. Like, <laughs> I don't know, I, don't, I wouldn't even know. Like, I mean, because this was, this was back in the 40s. So like, <laughs> you know, they kept records on parchment. Exactly, so I'm sure, you know. that's one of my bad dreams. You know, I wake up one day and they'll say, we have no record of you graduating from college, you didn't go. But, um, yeah. so, are you going consistently from one college to another? I was like, went to Yukon stores, dropped out, about a year of like drinking and learning how to DJ, went back to Yukon Stamford, dropped out, went back to SUNY Purchase, and then at that point, I started to have more of a job as a DJ, so I didn't... Okay, well, so, yeah. let's start. So if we're in the early 80s, mm -hmm. okay, what does it look like being a DJ then? Well... Uh, it was not very glamorous. You remember Portchester, New York? Of course. Home of the Capitol, nice. the home the of the Capitol, Capitol Theater, Theater yeah. which is now back up and uh, running. Yeah. Um, everyone That's right over the, the border from Connecticut. And it had a very special place, I'm assuming, when you were growing up as well, because the drinking age in Connecticut was 21, and the drinking age in New York was 18. And New Portchester was the first town over the border, so it was filled with kids from Connecticut, like, crashing their cars and getting STDs. <laughs> um, so I got a job DJing at a bar right by the Portchester train station on Monday nights for $25 a night. So I was working for six hours. No one was there except, like, a couple of, like, bottomed-out methadone addicts. And what would you play? I didn't even have that many records, so I'd play the same things over and over again. So it was... The Clash and Joy Division and some early New Order records and Hank Williams and Johnny Cash, basically like whatever records I had access to. Okay, so you did that, you went back to college and you're at Sony Purchase and at one point you say, I'm done with school. I just, because DJing, I started DJing time passed and I got a job DJing in New York and I realized, oh. So a little bit slower. How did you get a, a job DJing in the city? Well, because... You know Saturday Night Fever? Yes. Of course. So the, Staying alive. And Saturday Night Fever is a fascinating movie. If you haven't seen it recently, it's unrelentingly dark. Like, it's how that became like a pop culture phenomena, I have no idea because it's super bleak. Well, one of the and great things, that was based on an article by Nick Cohn in New York Magazine. Mm -hmm. And it, he was on deadline, he completely made it up. It wasn't true whatsoever, mm -hmm. although a great article and a great movie. Yeah. And, but it's about you know, these kids in Brooklyn and Queens who just long to get to Manhattan. But that existed not just in Brooklyn and Queens, but in Long Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, upstate New York. Like if you lived within the sort of periphery of Manhattan, all you wanted to do was go to Manhattan, to hang out, to work, to live. At least that was the case with me. So... In the late 80s, I started dropping off demo tapes at different nightclubs in New York and rejected everywhere. And I started giving demo tapes to radio stations like KISS and BLS. Same thing. I mean, like a skinny... Well, a little bit slower. KISS to and the BLS. clubs, yeah. they would be other people's material. To the radio, was it material that you had created? Both. I would drop off these cassettes that had like a hip-hop mix, a house music mix, and my own music. Okay. And I also sent it to tons of labels, and I got one response. From who? Hollywood Records. Wow. The only, when Peter Paterno ran it. And this was like 1988, and I got a letter from Hollywood Records that I That's remember so Disney. clearly, and it said, we do not accept unsolicited <laughs> <laughs> We'll take a quick break and come back with more of my conversation with Moby. 
Recorded at USC as part of the LA Times Festival of Books. This week we're talking to DJ Moby. Last week we had Shep Gordon, Supermensch. Before that we had Giles Martin and Shirley Manson and so many other people. You gotta go back into the archives if you haven't heard these things. So download from TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast player of choice. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Moby in front of a live studio audience. Okay, but a little bit slower. When did you start to record your own music? In the early 80s, I stole a four-track from the AV department at my high school. I gave it back. So, I, okay, I borrowed This is a reel-to-reel. No, like a, a, ta- like a Fostex. Okay. Like very, very... Like, Your school had a Fostex. That's amazing. Fo- Tascam or Fostex? Right. Well, they were too... Co- yeah. Fostex was first, then ta- Tascam, but people were buying them. They yeah. certainly didn't... I did not go to a low-rent school, but we didn't have that kind of equipment. Yeah, somehow... Well, I was also in the... You know, like when... Like, if you watch Family Guy, the nerdiest guy always has a hat that says AV. We were... I was in the AV department. You know, like, wheeling the film strip you know, the overhead projector to classes and setting it up and make sure it's clean and would eat my lunch in a closet in the AV department. <laughs> Not care, like I'd put Joy Division on my Walkman and eat my peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a closet and it was great. But where were we? Um, about the Fostex. Well, for those people who don't know, it was a real breakthrough because there are four tracks on a cassette, and the Fostex was the first machine that allowed you to sync up and record on all four tracks, which was a huge breakthrough. It was Egalita- relatively egalitarian multi-track technology. And I remember the first time I turned it on and used it, because I had a, a Mattel drum machine. Mattel made a drum machine called the Synsonics. God, you're bringing that back. I forgot yeah. that. And so I had my Mattel Synsonics drum machine, <laughs> my borrowed Fostex, a guitar, and a microphone that I also sort of borrowed from the AV department. And I was able to make music on my own. And it was you know, like the scales fell from my eyes and suddenly, you know, I was like, I can, I don't need to wait around for other musicians. I can just do this by myself. So, yeah, so the late 80s. Okay, so when you're making music at first, what kind of music are you making? Uh, a little bit of everything, sort of inspired by some of the singer-songwriter, like Roddy Frame from Aztec Camera, the Smiths, The Cure, but also electronic music, you know, inspired so, by Kraftwerk. Okay, by Kraftwerk. Um, the, the demo tape that I got sent around that got rejected was actually my singer-songwriter stuff. So it wasn't... That In was, retrospect, how good was... <laughs> no, <laughs> no, this is great. We're having a great back and forth. This, In I retrospect, how good was that stuff? Oh, totally mediocre. You know, because that's one of the things. People send you stuff originally, and they think it's so great. And if they ever make it, they look back and go, maybe I didn't deserve to make it at that point. Well, then I had this sort of like like the Robert Frost moment, two paths diverge in the wood. And I was playing demos to my girlfriend and a friend of hers. And I was playing my very earnest singer-songwriter music. And they were like, yeah, it's okay. And then I was like, oh, but I've also started making electronic music. And I played it for them, and they stood up and started dancing. Wow. And at that moment, I was like, the audience has spoken. Like, I guess I'm not supposed to be the next Morrissey. I'm supposed to make electronic music. Okay, while you're making music, you talk about soliciting gigs in New York City. Yeah. So tell us more about that. So I was constantly sneaking into New York on Metro North, like hiding in the bathroom on Metro North (laughs) with a bag full of demo tapes, jumping turnstiles, getting cheap food at Dojo, if you remember Dojo, um, and bringing demo tapes everywhere. Every record label, every radio station, you know, waiting outside WNYU in the hope that maybe someone who worked at WNYU would, like, be willing to take a tape. And I dropped off tapes at every nightclub, every bar, and then there was this one club opening called Mars, and it was on the West Side Highway in the Meatpacking District. And this was back when the Meatpacking District was the Meatpacking District. Like, right. there were, like, dead lamb carcasses on the street and blood everywhere and prostitutes servicing all sorts of people out in the open. Like, it was really post-apocalyptic and grim. And the middle of it was this huge nightclub Mars. And I went there to drop off a demo tape. And the HR person laughed at me because they were taking applications for like busboy, janitor, barback, and I dropped off a demo tape. But the guy hiring DJs had never hired DJs before, and he wondered why no one had dropped off demo tapes. So I got my job 
solely because I was the only person to drop off a demo tape. And do you remember what year that was? That would have been 88. And so you started to work there how frequently? First once a week, then twice a week, then three times a week, and then in 1989 or 88, um, finally moved back to New York on, and got this apartment on 14th and 3rd with four other people. Okay. What kind of music are you playing when you're working at Mars? Um, mainly house music and hip-hop, but also some dancehall reggae, which was really big at the time. And occasionally, my boss, his name was Yuki, and he was Japanese, and he was really interesting. And he would ask me if I could play certain genres of music. And I would always just say yes. Right. You know, like, so he, I remember one time in particular, he called me up and said, oh, we're having a rare groove party on the roof. Can you play rare groove? And I was like, of course I can. <laughs> and then I hung up the phone and I started calling people. I was like, what is rare groove? <laughs> and so the three other people you're living with, how did you find them and find the apartment? Uh, one was a friend of mine from Connecticut. It was an artist named Damien Loeb. Uh, then he was dating a model named Anne. And then there's another DJ named Adrian who became a very successful hip-hop DJ named Stretch Armstrong. Uh, and then my friend Lee, also is just a, an artist from New York who now owns an art gallery in Connecticut. Okay, so you're working at Mars ultimately many nights a week. Based on the story you've just told, you're still obviously hustling your demo tapes. Oh, yeah. And then finally... This finally, the moment came. I dropped off demo tapes everywhere, and I was DJing at Mars, and this guy named Jared Hoffman came to the DJ booth, and he asked me a question. He said, well, do you make your own music? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. So the next day, I went to his apartment on 14th and 7th, and I gave him a demo tape of my own music, and he called me up, and he said, we would like to sign you to an artist contract to our record label called Instinct Records put it in perspective, at that time, they actually didn't have a name, they didn't have an office, they'd never made records, they had no employees, it was an idea that he and a friend of his had had. So, my, so, so I was signed to a record label that at the time wasn't How a long did it take you to figure that out? Uh, I kind of just ignored that fact, because someone had offered me a contract. Like, I... And I never in my wildest dreams thought I would sign a recording contract even if it wasn't technically with a record label. Okay, let's stop it here for a second. When you're DJing, are you DJing under the name Moby? Yeah, I've been called Moby since I was born. Uh, my, so, my legal name is Richard Melville Hall. Right, but so in school you were never Rich, you were never Rick. You were mm -hmm. always Moby. Yeah. Okay, so you make this, you sign this record deal. They don't know what they're doing. Do you actually make a record? Then... We take six months to make my first 12-inch called Time's Up. Oddly prescient for the Time's Up movement, um, considering this was 1989. Although I guess I can't in any way lay claim to it as a cisgendered heterosexual white man, but nonetheless. Uh, and the record did nothing. I just disappeared. And then I made my second record under my own name, which came out and sold about a thousand copies, which in high school I'd been in a punk rock band called the Vatican Commandos, and we had a seven inch that sold 200 copies. And that amazed me, because that meant there were 200 people who had heard the music we made. But now there were a thousand people who heard the music I had made. And I, if my career had ended then, I would have been pretty happy. Absolutely. But then the next single, was a remix of the song Go, which became a top 10 record around Europe and around the rest of the world. I think sold half a million copies. Okay, but this is still with these two uh, crazy guys? Yeah, now they had a label. They had Instinct. And they didn't really have an office. They had Jared's apartment. And I, was, I set up my equipment there, so I ran the office. Like, I would clean the kitchen, send faxes, take records to UPS and the post so office. So you were working your own records? Uh, yeah, it was... And like answering the phone, like, hello, Instinct Records, while I was like hitting pause on my sequencer. Right. Um, and it was great. I, it was a okay, so joyful, joyful, happy time. You make go. In your mind, do you think it's a hit? No. So absolutely not. Because I was, I was a super weird, obscure musician that no one had ever heard of, involved in a genre, techno, that no one had heard of or cared about. And I used music from Twin Peaks. And I was like, well... I, People know Twin Peaks, but no, I didn't think anything was gonna, ever going to happen. And how did it happen? It happened at the good, because 
this was 1989 or 90, the rave scene in the UK was exploding and Twin Peaks was exploding and interest in New York dance music was exploding. So some influential DJs in the UK found this record and started playing it and it just sort of metastasized in a very good way. And what was that like being at the epicenter? It's still possible that it didn't happen. <laughs> you know, like it's still possible that right now, like that I'm, it's 1989 and I'm cleaning oatmeal bowls in the kitchen at Instinct Records, a.k.a. Jared's apartment, and somehow I'm having a stroke or something or a dissociative, like, Joan of Arc-style moment where, like, all of a sudden, like, my brain is, like, secreting psilocybin naturally on its own, and this is all a hallucination. Because the idea to, to go from selling a thousand records to then all of a sudden being on top of the pops multiple times and traveling all around Europe and suddenly instead of standing on stage in front of 30 people on the Lower East Side standing on stage in front of 10,000 people who knew the songs that I had made and it, wow. I, it was wonderful but so disconcerting disconcerting in what way? because I'd never expected it Okay, but certainly when you go from a club to a festival or a gig of 10,000 people, you must add some level of stage fright, fear, inauthenticity, figuring, you know, they're gonna, I'm going to go up and, and people are going to say, what the hell is this? Yeah, oddly enough, the stage fright thing, so my first ever real solo performance, and I think you might appreciate certain aspects of this, was at the Palladium. The Palladium was the coolest club in New York. And I had seen The Clash there, I'd seen Simple Minds there, and XTC, I'd seen so many shows there. And in 1989 or 90, I got asked to open up for the band Snap. Do you remember Snap? I got the power. Uh, 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 uh. Um, rhythm is a dancer. Uh. So, Snap were huge. The power was the biggest song in the world. And I somehow, I think the booking agent was dating a friend of mine. And so I was going to open up for Snap in front of thousands of people at the Palladium. So I show up and I do my sound check. And this is a lovely, odd little biographical detail. At the end of my sound check, I hear two people, well, one person clapping. And I'm like, oh, someone's at my sound check. And it was my boss, Yuki, from Mars, happened to be at the Palladium, and I walked out to say hi, and there was this very small man standing next to him, and he said, Moby, meet Miles Davis. <laughs> so f my first ever solo show was to two people, one of whom was Miles Davis. You could have quit then, too. Yeah, and he wouldn't shake my hand, but he was wearing a beautiful suit. And, and then 10 o'clock rolls around, the Palladium is filled with people and the booking agent comes to me and says, oh, bad news, Snap didn't make their flight. But you can go play. <laughs> so I walk on stage and the MC says, ladies and gentlemen, bad news, Snap aren't here. Boo! <laughs> but from New York, Moby, I hadn't made a record at this point. People are booing and throwing things and I walk over to my equipment and someone had unplugged it. And so I spent three or four minutes oh, in God. front of 5,000 people plugging in my equipment and rebooting discs. Wow. And they were booing. And then when it was finally done and the first song started, I was like, oh, I don't care. Like, I was like, this is the worst experience. This is like such a nightmare experience. But I went through it. You know, I was like, you how about the audience? Were they with you or still against you? By the end of it, they were actually kind of with me. And I realized that one thing that can serve performers really well is having a degree of contempt for your audience. <laughs> where you can love That's them. That's fascinating, I love that. Where you can love them, but you don't really care if they love you in return. And that's when you can just perform, as opposed to like being some like lapdog sycophant, like saying like, oh, please love me. Just being like, if you love me, that's fine. If not, that's fine too. Okay, from the gig of Palladium, how do you end up on top of the Pops and in Europe? Uh, just put that song go with the Twin Peaks music on it and it just kept going and then all of a sudden the rave scene blew up in the United States and at that point as you know a lot of the rave producers were very faceless 
you know, they would give themselves alter egos and they wouldn't perform. And I was one of the only people with a face. I mean, I guess technically they all had faces. They just chose not to show them. And so I started being on the cover of magazines and there weren't that many public figure techno producers in the United States. There were really a handful. And I kept touring and touring and touring and touring with The Prodigy and with The Shaman. Do you remember the band The Shaman? And, and I just toured and toured and toured like old school Chitlin circuit style, like just me and a keyboard. Okay, a couple of things. Were you making any money? I remember I, got, I played one show in the UK and I got paid $600. And I was like, I, I just got paid $600. Like I was, at that time I was being paid $100 to DJ. And I was like, wow, I just got paid six nights of DJing in one night. This, so up until about 92, that was the most I'd ever made. And in retrospect, were you being ripped off or that was Absolutely. the money there was? Uh, now when I think of like, like Martin Garrix. Right. I like Martin Garrix. I really like that animal song quite a lot. A young techno producer puts out one song. Six months later, he has a private plane and he's getting paid 150000 And I was like, oh, I had a top 10 single and I was getting paid $600 a night. Clearly someone else was making a lot of money. You were yeah. a progenitor. And at this point, the act was solely you on stage. With a little Octopad and a little Yamaha keyboard and a microphone that I would yell into, being an old punk rocker. And that was it. Okay, and you're traveling. How does the record label situation work? Oh, eventually, I left Instinct because they were, they, as often happens, like, structurally, they were quite small, and things were going well for me. So then I signed with Mute Records and Electra. So I was with Bob Krasnow and Electra here in the States, and Daniel Miller and Mute everywhere else. And did that work for you? Yeah, I mean Daniel Miller and Mute Records. You know, you know Mute Records like Depeche Mode, Nick Cave, um, Goldfrap, etc. On and on and on. Like an amazing, amazing label. Daniel has never dropped an artist. So when I signed with Mute, I was like, I, I'm set. Like I can do anything, and I know he's never going to drop me because he's never dropped an artist. Electra, on the other hand. I think they signed me thinking, oh, he's going to be our techno wonderkind. Like, you know, there's this whole genre of music and he's going to be the progenitor of it and we're going to sell millions of records. And that never happened. And so I became sort of the bastard stepchild at Electra, Understandably, because I wasn't selling records. But like, as a record company person, okay, I... Don't mean that in a bad way. As a well, I never former, really worked at a record yeah, company, so you don't as, have to worry about offending me. As someone who has a lot of experience right. around record companies, in 1995, I put out an album called Everything Is Wrong, and Spin Magazine, that autumn, three or four months after it came out, said, this is going to be our album of the year. We went to Elektra and said, guess what? Spin, at the time, was a real magazine, with paper and everything, <laughs> and... We went to them and said, wow, it's going to be the album of the year. And the response from Electra was like, oh, sorry, it's already a catalog item. There's nothing we can do. Wow. And did it fail accordingly? Yeah. Okay. So at this point in time, for most of the 90s, you're putting out music with Mutant Electra, and you're touring. What kind of audience are you, especially where this music is prominent in the uh, UK and the continent, what kind of gigs are you doing? Um, clubs and raves. Every now and then I would do a solo show, but that, up until the mid-90s, the solo shows didn't make sense. Because, like, that genre of, you know, electronic dance music, people wanted big events, you know. And so you'd play 10,000 people, and if I did a solo show, 100 people, 150 people. Um, and, yeah, I remember was when I... In 95, this album, Everything is Wrong, I did a solo tour. And in some places, we sold like 300 tickets. And I was like, I can't believe that's like 300 people coming out to just see me. Like, I'm not part of a rave. I'm not on tour with 30 other people. So that was really exciting. And are you getting frustrated because your career is at this level? Or you still believe there's something beyond? Or is this beyond your wildest dreams? So... I mentioned earlier, my high school punk rock band, the Vatican Commandos, sold 200 copies of a 7-inch 
everything beyond that has been unimaginable <laughs> success. Okay, but at one point you get frustrated and you change your sound. Oh, then in, then in the late 90s, I decided to make a punk rock record because think of like the artists you and I grew up revering. I thought that part of being a musician was to experiment and take chances and to be Lou Reed making metal machine music, to be the Beatles and making Revolution Number no. 9, to be David Bowie and go from like the laughing gnome to a Philadelphia disco artist. Like I thought that's what musicians did. So I made this very dark punk rock record because I thought it was part of the job description of being a musician to experiment <laughs> and it got crucified. Like I got, everyone hated it except for a few people. Bono told me he liked it as much as the first Clash album. Um, Axl Rose, who now hates me, told me that he would listen to it on repeat while driving around LA. But the best is I got one piece of fan mail from Terrence Trent Darby. Wow. On Terrence Trent Darby purple stationery, <laughs> telling me how much he liked the record. So the three of them liked it. Okay, so the motivation was just about expanding your horizons. I just, I just, I'd been making electronic music and I really missed playing guitar and screaming. And then after the reaction, generally speaking, is negative, what headspace does that leave you in? Well, it was a very dark time because I'd been sober for eight years and then I started drinking again, started dating a lot of professional sex workers, as you do. Um, my mom, well, what are we talking about? Literally professional sex workers? Or yeah. we're talking about people in the nightlife sphere who live that lifestyle? people who would get paid to have sex. <laughs> okay, well, do we call that dating? Well, I, I, luckily, I was not a customer. I was a boyfriend. Okay. You know, and, and also like dominatrixes, strippers, phone sex workers, okay, etc. You know. Now this is a whole other aspect. I mean, for those of us who haven't walked on the dark side of the street, how do you find these people? You live in lower Manhattan in the 90s. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, like bagels and professional sex workers. Okay. Were these hookers with a heart of gold or were they just low-class people? Uh, no, they were... Uh, what I found, and hmm, it's sort of like growing up really poor, I don't know, for some reason, I've always been attracted to friends or dating people who sort of wear their brokenness on their sleeve, you know? And do you try to fix them? There's a little Holden Caulfieldism going on there. Yeah, like, you know, you, you step these, in. These relationships with these broken people, they end how? Uh, usually with me having panic attacks and running away. <laughs> Oh, really? So do you still have panic attacks today? The, only when I try to get close to anyone. Yeah, but apart from that, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that really panic attack? Panic oh, attack or just oh, a fear of intimacy? Oh, no, it's full on. So what do the professionals say about that? Uh, the professionals say that, because I've seen quite a lot of them, <laughs> that... I have panic attacks. I mean, I was part of a study on panic attack sufferers at Columbia. I've seen con lots of therapists, been medicated. It, it doesn't... But what we know about panic, because I used to suffer from panic attacks, yeah. is if you wait long enough, the panic will evaporate. Yes, which largely is true. Unfortunately, I was diagnosed at Columbia as having a very unique type of panic disorder. It's called plateaued panic disorder. I once had a panic attack that lasted for six months. And I'm not kidding. It started... And it just, when I went to sleep, I wasn't panicking, but I'd wake up and it would come right back. Every waking minute, I'd go to sleep, wake up, it would come right back. And it only started waning about six months into it. And, but you could sleep? Event, with, yeah, like I would pass out just through exhaustion. Okay, then uh, let's wind it back. You go through the dark period subsequent to your punk rock record. Yeah. And then what are the thoughts in your brain as far as moving forward? So I make the punk rock record called Animal Rights. Um, start drinking again. My mom dies of lung cancer. I lose what my... What year did your mother die? 97. Now, was, did your mother acknowledge and respect your success? Oh, she loved it. She loved it. There's the most adorable story is when I put out the album Everything is Wrong on a major label, Electra Records, she took a review to the editor of the Darien News Review. <laughs> and she walked in there. Darien News Review, circulation... Five, ten, right. and she walked in. She said, "My son is a famous musician. You should write about him." 
And did they? Eventually. Like, I think 10 years later, yeah. It was a big deal, like okay, doing an interview so for Darian. Your, mother, your father's dead. Your mother's passed. You are now an orphan. Do you have any other family that you had connection with? Uh, two aunts and uncles, some cousins who I love very much. But gets a, a little Russian literature-y. On my mom's deathbed, she told me that I have a half-brother somewhere. Somewhere? Somewhere. She got pregnant in high school, had a child, put it up for adoption, and I found out about this right before she died. And have you found that person? No. But fast forward to the year 2007. Um, uh, Alexandra Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's daughter, and I are in D.C. hanging out with Nancy, at this point, Nancy, Speaker of the House. Um, so she was surrounded. I mean, she's third in line to the presidency. So it's a, she's a big deal. I mean, she's always been a big deal. But I got very drunk, and I was talking to a journalist from Politico. And somehow this came up that I have a half-brother. And I jokingly said, maybe it's Karl Rove. <laughs> and he then, he wrote a funny little piece, Are Moby and Karl Rove Brothers? <laughs> Keep in mind, if you don't, I, I told this story once, and the person was like, who's Karl Rove? I was like, oh, that's right, you're young. Um, so, so, Karl Rove was, he's the one, he, he essentially was the architect of the Bush White House. And so, two weeks after this article comes out, I get a letter on White House stationery, handwritten, it says, and I have it memorized, Dear Moby, or is that Mr. Moby, it's not me. <laughs> For one thing, I am 17 years older than you and I have no musical ability. Have you considered James Carville as he's bald and plays the guitar? I have it framed in my bathroom. Your pal, Carl Rove. So, of the three and a half billion men on the planet, I know that Carl Rove is not my brother. Okay. So you'll still be hunting. You're listening to my conversation with Grammy-nominated DJ Moby. We'll be back in a moment. Hope you're enjoying listening to this episode of the Bob Left Sense podcast. If you want to see videos and photos of our guests, go to at TuneIn on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Now more of Moby and me in front of a live studio audience at the LA Times Festival of Books on the Bob Left Sets podcast. So in this dark period, how do you decide to make music again and what music do you then make? Well, I was playing Glastonbury. Do you know Glastonbury? It's sort of like one of the original biggest festivals in the world. And in the UK. In the UK. And um, I was playing Glastonbury and it was raining and it was muddy and it was disgusting and, I would, and they wanted me to play a dance music set. And I had, and I, this was after the Animal Rights, the rock record, and I wanted to make a darker punk rock record. I was like, animal rights wasn't dark enough. I mean, like, it was pretty dark. And I wanted to make like a super, like Sepultura-inspired dark punk rock record. And one of my managers said the simplest little thing. He said, well, you could do that. He said, but you know, your electronic music makes people happy. And that was what reached me. He didn't say you could sell more. He didn't say it would be better for your career. He said it makes people happy. And all of a sudden I thought like, oh... If I have the ability to put music out into the world, why not try to make people happy? And so then um, I lost my deal with Elektra and I made the album play thinking it was going to be my last album. Okay. You thought it was going to be your last album for Elektra or his last album, period? Period, because no one was into I mean, I was such a has-been at this point. Like, 99, I was like as has been as a has-been could be. Now, that I, record ultimately came out in V2, uh, Richard Branson's uh, label, you, yeah. in the U.S. Um, was the record done when they picked it up? Yeah. Uh, one of the A&R people at V2 had heard, somehow heard one of the songs on NPR, some college radio station upstate New York, and they signed it for North America. Okay. A licensing deal, which is great, because now I own it again. Okay, so the record, you're making it, it had a number of guest spots, etc. For those looking at your career, this would be a larger step, a broader thing than you would have done previously. Oh, it was... I mean, everything about it is baffling. I made it on old, broken equipment in my tiny little studio on Mott Street. Um, some of the songs were mixed onto cassette. There are three songs on play that are demos that were recorded to cassette. Um, made for a budget of exactly zero dollars. 
and released with no expectations. Like I remember someone at V2 saying, you know what? We think Play could sell 50,000 copies. <laughs> and I, la- I was like, it was um, Richard Sanders. Do you know Richard Sanders? Of course. So Richard said, you know what? We actually have high hopes for Play. We think it could sell 50,000 copies. Fast forward a year, it was selling 200,000 copies a week. Wow. With that, or alternately, that is not true, and I am just hallucinating somewhere, and this is all... Okay, so you make that record. There are a lot of legends about that record. One, that every track was licensed for commercials. A, is that literally true? Every track was licensed, but a lot of the licenses were actually for, like, student films, because I'm tight. Right. Et cetera. So, like, there were a lot of commercial licenses for which I was crucified, over and over and over and right. over and over again. Once again, at the bleeding edge. Yeah. But looking back at your career, was that your effort, the label's effort, the manager's effort? How did those licenses come to be? Well, at first, okay, so in 1995, the album Everything is Wrong, I had, there's a song on there called God Moving Over the Face of the Water. So it was used in Michael Mann's Heat. Thanks. Um, Range Rover came to me and said, we want to give you $150,000 to use God Moving Over the Face of the Waters in a Range Rover commercial. My knee-jerk reaction was to say, fuck you, Range Rover. You know, I'm an old punk rocker. I don't even have a driver's license. Like, go fuck yourself. But then, but then I thought, I was like, well, if I go to, if I go to Greenpeace and say, I got offered $150,000 to license music to Range Rover, and I told them to go fuck themselves, someone at Greenpeace would say, good for you. Or if I said, oh, here's a check for $150,000, they'd be a lot happier. So I sort of decided to enter this Faustian Robin Hood slash bargain, where I was like, I will license my music as long as ultimately I do good things with the money. All of the money? Over time, yes. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Over time, that is the goal, is to, like, any money that has come in from licensing, I have to get rid of. Wow. So, in any event, you're like... Yes. I also would like to say, in the early 2000s, I did forget about that for a while. <laughs> you know, so I'm now trying to, like, mea culpa make up for it. Okay. <laughs> but the record is not an instant hit. It's successful, but it's not mega. Oh, it's... I mean, it sold 4,000 copies the week it was released, and then 2,000 copies the next week, and then 1,000 copies the week after that. And the licensing, to your question, was mainly done because music supervisors were the only people interested, like KCRW here, and people who wanted to use the music in TV shows. That was the only attention the record was getting, so we just said yes. And what was the turning point, the breakthrough on that record that blew it up in your Uh, mind? um, The turning point was Danny Boyle using porcelain in the movie The Beach. Because The Beach was Leo DiCaprio's first movie after Titanic, so everyone went to see it. And they used porcelain when they get to the beach, when they get to the island. And you could just sense, like, that was the moment where, like, it went from being a weird little underground record to all of a sudden, like being so much bigger than that. And then you're tied up with Gwen Stefani, you're all over MTV. What's it like being the eye of the hurricane on that? It was great. I mean, because it was also anthropologically baffling, because I thought this was going to be my last record and I was going to move back to Connecticut, teach philosophy at community college, and, you know, be in a loveless marriage. Um, and, 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 That's part of the plan. Yeah, and die. And then all of a sudden, like, there are movie stars coming to my concerts and they want to date me and I'm getting invited to amazing parties and instead of playing to, like, the touring, for example, in the UK, the first show that I did was at a place called The Scala on the play tour and we sold 400 tickets, which I thought was great. The last show was selling out Wembley and adding a show at Brixton Academy. Is it Wembley Stadium or the, the arena? arena. The, the not, arena. Yeah, the arena, okay. is, which is like... 15,000. Yeah, 15,000. Um, I actually did end up playing Wembley Stadium, but it's, a, it's much later. Right. And it has not... It was, I was playing a corporate event, and there were 200 people there. And if you've <laughs> ever played 200 people in a stadium that holds 60,000... Things are not working so out. So in any event, <laughs> things, are, things are going up. You started off playing to 400, now you're playing to 15,000. Yeah. And what are you thinking? 
I'm thinking that this is the answer to every problem I've ever had. <laughs> and, and, and you ultimately learn that it's not, of course. Yeah, and then I was like, I was like, I mean, I, I just finished writing Memoir 2, and there's this one scene, I mean, I feel very narcissistic quoting myself, but there's a scene where like, I'm playing a concert and I look over at the side of the stage and there's like Madonna and Gwyneth Paltrow and Natalie Portman dancing. And, and I imagine a conversation with myself, like me with like the old 18 year old punk rocker and the 18 year old punk rocker is like, fuck you, don't you know celebrity culture is facile and like you're such a running dog licks biddle accommodator to these paradigms that you know are cheap and shitty. And I was like, yeah, but they're being nice to me. <laughs> it's like Howard Stern today. Yeah. So did you uh, test the waters? All of them, yeah, of course. And what did you learn? Uh, uh, which waters? I mean, like, the waters... Well, like, you know, you saying the, the door opens up. You're a recognizable character. You talk about uh, not feeling good about yourself and therefore dating sex workers. Suddenly, iconic people are interested in you. Was that something that you then proceeded to date those people? Oh, of course. And what was that like? Uh, interesting, because... you Okay, so we live in a culture... Where and I'm stating the obvious, but we live in a culture where we're all instilled with the belief that if you have the right combination of like fame, money, sex, etc., everything's going to work out. And I was given all of that times a thousand, and I was never less happy. You know, so like the more I drank the more people I dated, the more drugs I did, the more money I made. And I'm not looking for sympathy and I'm not complaining, but it's just an old school object lesson of like, you know, I found myself in a penthouse apartment on the Upper West Side with Bono and Alec Baldwin as my neighbor and I've never been less happy. I love Bono and Alec Baldwin. I'm not, I'm not involving them in right. my despair. But did but, you also find out that really this roving jet set are just not your people? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, I grew up with the idea that like, if you're going to a party, if you get invited to a party with Bill Clinton and George Plimpton and Natalie Portman, there's lots of similar sounding last names. Yes. Um, and there's all these like luminaries and celebrities, you know, like the most remarkable, famous, even at times erudite people in the world. Like you think, wow, if I could just be friends with them, things are gonna be great. And then you're at that party and you're like, oh, they're not so great. <laughs> You know, like, right. you realize, like, oh, the friends I grew up with are nicer and funnier. And the people I went to high school with actually are a little more insightful and humble. And I'm sure you've had that experience many Absolutely, times, but know. then I asked, to what degree am I a writer and therefore inherently a loner? We all like the experience when you're sitting there and you get a letter from Bono or even Carl Rove, yeah. et cetera. But then you have enough experiences where you're in these environments, the door opens and you go, do I really belong here? Is this fulfilling for me? Well, especially at first because it was so exciting. And you're like, there's Gwyneth and she's being nice to me and there's such and such movie star who even wants to go on a date with me. And you're like, this is great. And then you take a step back and you're like, but I haven't had a meaningful conversation with anyone. And it's basically every public figure I've ever met is this messy combination of entitlement and terror. You Talk know. about the terror. We certainly know the entitlement. Oh, the terror is that it's going to go away. Speaking of going away, you have this gargantuan success with play. To what degree do you feel internal pressure to follow it up, do something different? Can I reach this level? I mean, if you look at someone like at the pinnacle, Michael Jackson, he has this pinnacle with Thriller, mm -hmm. which he tries to imitate ultimately badly, okay? But you have this iconic success, and except for maybe some of the people in your electronic world who might be jealous, it was a universally adored record. Mm -hmm. Everybody loved the record. So moving forward, what were your thoughts? Moving forward, my thought was, I want more fame. I want more of everything I have. I, if I'm going out five nights a week, I want to go out seven nights a week. If I'm sleeping with 10 people, I want to sleep with 20 people. If I want, if I sold 10 million records, I want to sell 20 million records. Like, I lost my fucking mind. Like, I wanted everything but more of everything. And slowly, things didn't work out. Like, you know, like, play was the peak. And then the subsequent records, the reviews got bad, started selling fewer tickets, et cetera. And I panicked. 
because I thought that fame and record sales and all this, I, I, all I wanted was for everything to stay at the peak of play every day for the rest of my life. Right. And not to anthropomorphize the universe, but the universe had other plans in mind for me. So, but in your mind, you tried to replicate the success of play. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I tried to make music that I liked, right. but I tried to also tick as many boxes as possible. I was like, well, I, wanna, I don't want to be a complete lickspittle sellout, so I want to make music I like that also radio programmers will like, that journalists will like, that the people at the record company will like, that the sync agents will like, that the licensees will like, and I realized there are people who are good at that. Like there, are, as you know, like there are tons of great pop producers who know how to make great records that also do well at radio, etc. I'm not that person. You know, and the more I tried, the, the worse the results. In retrospect, if you had to do it all over again, would you be able to make records that resonated more or more successful, or those, those records, it just, you know, it wasn't your time anymore? Um, no, everything is perfect. I mean, at the time, I, w I would have said yes. Like, show me how to make a more successful record. Show me how to produce a pop song that will give me back the career, the pinnacle that I had with Play. But now, you and I are sitting here. We're sober and healthy. We've got a nice bunch of people here. Um, and I have a perspective that's informed by success and failure. And if you like your perspective, you can't be too upset at the circumstances that have led you to have that perspective. Okay, let's go back to some of the highlights or lowlights of that era. Eminem famously dissed you in a song. Yeah. Were you happy about that, mortified? Um, at first, I thought it was a joke. And then I ran into him at the 2002 MTV Music Awards, and he tried to attack me. He also attacked Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. So I was like, <laughs> clearly he was having a bad day to go after like a skinny, bald vegan and a puppet. Um, but... But up until that moment, I thought like, oh, this is like, because I actually, I don't know Eminem, but I like some of his music. Um, I think he's a fascinating public figure. Uh, so I, I didn't know that it was serious, like that he really hated me. So at this point in 2018, you've continued to make music, but the peak of your success is nearly two decades back. Mm -hmm. So what ignites you? What keeps you going? What do you want to do now? Uh, the goal, I'm at the risk of sounding too much like a vegan who lives in Los Angeles, who meditates, the goal is just like, it's the pursuit of beauty. It's the idea that every day when I go into my studio, there's an opportunity to make something beautiful. Not that I do, but it's, I've always admired the work ethic of like Flannery O'Connor, Picasso, Solzhenitsyn, like the people who just day in, day out worked. You know, and you show up with the hope that you'll be inspired. And inspired in the old etymological sense of inspired, to have like the breath of inspiration breathed into you. And if I spend my entire life trying to do that and it doesn't work out, at least I loved the process of doing it. And do you make music how frequently? Every day, without... Every day. Yeah. But you don't release all that music. No, I have about six or 7,000 unreleased songs. And, but we live in an era where theoretically you could release that. Except a lot of it's not good. <laughs> so what do you feel, how do you feel about all the changes in the music business? You know, there are issues of music monetization, but it used to be, especially, you know, you were like the tail end of this with play. We lived in a monoculture, and if you were successful, everybody knew you, mm -hmm. whereas Avicii dies, I'm getting emails saying I never heard one of his songs, even though Wake Me Up five years ago is one of the biggest records of yeah. all time. So what's it like being a musician in this era? Uh, I mean, to some extent, I feel like I can't speak to that experience, you know, because I'm 52 years old. I sold a lot of records a long time ago. Um, so, like, whenever I... If I do interviews and I talk about my opinions about the current state of the music business, understandably so, people tend to dismiss my opinion. They're like, you I understand. Know. Believe me, I understand the thought you're making. And, and what gets you off now, other than making music? What what turns you on? Uh, well, well, so but to your question about the music business, selfishly, personally, I love the current state of the music business. I love how egalitarian it is. Um, I love that anyone anywhere in the world can make music and actually potentially have an audience for it. Um, I don't love 
we'll think of it like a qualitative gray goo. Do you remember the concept of a gray goo? Actually, I don't. Oh, that at some point, automated technology would get to the point where like, just, we're just spewing out stuff and the world would be covered in gray goo. And I think musically, we sometimes are at risk of that. We're like, it's very easy to make okay music, you know, with Ableton. With, and I love these software platforms, but it's easy to make music that's pretty good. But what about Imagine? You know, what about Cat Stevens? What about the Rolling Stones? What about like when music is transcendent? I, I don't hear that much of it. I know it's being made, but I feel like I do miss when you had like professional musicians who would, like when Leonard Cohen would write Suzanne and it took him three years to write that song. Mm. I miss that, you know, the, the transcendence. But I also like how democratic and egalitarian I, you know, I like that you know, all the barriers are down, everybody can play. But just as a fan, it's hard to wake, get through the morass. There's yeah. so much stuff. I mean, if you go on Spotify, you listen to the Spotify Top 50, and then you know, there's all the genres, it's overwhelming. In any event, we've come to the end of the feeling we've known, and mm -hmm. I thank you all for attending. Moby has been incredible. Very erudite intellectual responses yourself. I could go on for another hour, but they tell us our time is up. Once again, Moby. That wraps up this week's episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast, recorded live on the University of Southern California campus at the LA Times Festival of Books. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation with Moby. As always, I welcome your feedback. Email me at bobatleftsets.com. Until next time, it's Bob Left Sets. <laughs>